at this time as we come to worship God by hearing from his word. It is by his word that the Lord reveals himself to his people. Because God himself is infallible and inerrant, his word must also be infallible and inerrant. A God who is flawless has only the capacity to generate a word that is also flawless. And with him, there are no errors, there are no mistakes, there are no admissions. And so we can look upon his word and also know that there are no errors, no mistakes, and no omissions. We come to the word then fully confident and fully trusting because we have an accurate God, a God full of integrity. And so his word is also one of integrity. When the word confronts our hearts then, we don't come to it reluctantly, we come to it expectantly. And when the word challenges our reasoning, we do not doubt God's delivery of truth. We must first doubt our discernment of it. And so with that said, with this disposition towards the revelation of God, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, and I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, To Be Called Children of God. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. And if you're using the Pew Bible, the text can be found on page 925. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 9, reviewing the last few weeks of text that we've gone through. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Put on, then, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. At less than one year old, in the middle or in the height of World War II, a little boy by the name of Isaac found himself at the center of attention by both German and French police. More specifically, it was his parents who found themselves at the center of their attention. Isaac's father was a prominent lawyer in this part of France where they lived, and he and his wife were proud to be French. Long ago, they had already determined that they were first Frenchmen and Frenchwoman. 
and that being a Jew was secondary to that. But then when the anti-Jewish edicts were announced in 1940, the only thing that mattered to the police was not their status as French citizens, but their status as Jews. At this time, they were pregnant, or she was pregnant, and concerned about raising a baby in the middle of the busy city, especially in the midst of what was going on, they decided to move to the country. And after a short amount of time, the woman indeed did give birth to Isaac. Shortly thereafter, the German and French police began rounding up the Jews. It took them roughly a month before they made it out to the countryside where these two people were staying, those that were part of what we would call the Havley household by their last name. When the police showed up, the couple was given 20 minutes to pack a bag that could not weigh more than 60 pounds. And while the police waited, a woman showed up at the door and explained to them, My name is Anne Marie. The Havleys are looking after my son while I go to the market. Because this baby was so young and because the baby was born in the countryside, there were no records of this child. There was no record of another person in this household. And so the Hendarme studied his papers and, and according to the documents that he had before him, only two Jews lived in this house, in this cottage. And so he called for the Havleys and, and asked, this woman says a boy belongs to her. Is that true? And before his wife could react, he quickly grabbed her, and then the gentleman said, of, of course it is. We were just watching him for the afternoon. Hendarme looked at the father then, somewhat incredulously, and, and then consulted the registration documents again a second time. And finally, he told the woman, fine, take the child and leave. I have good mind to take you into custody myself for entrusting a French child to the care of these dirty Jews. Two months later, the Howleys were murdered. When the war had ended, she was uncertain of what to do. Anne-Marie took this child first to a synagogue, not sure what she was supposed to do since his parents were no more. And the, the rabbi gave her two options either to raise the child on her own or to put it up for adoption. She chose to raise the boy herself, along with her husband and the children she already had. But she would do so with full knowledge of who his parents were and what his background was, including his Jewish background. Ask Isaac his perspective, or even ask his daughter, so the granddaughter of these two that were murdered, and you will hear them say that this was not the life story they had chosen, but it was chosen for them. More importantly, by Anne Marie's willingness to step out, she and her family chose Isaac. And they brought him into their own home, into their own family. In both circumstances, Isaac expresses the love he had received from his family. First, the love he received from the mother and father that he never knew. By their willingness to step out and, and deny their claim to him so that he may have an opportunity for life. And second, of course, by the family who took him in. Indeed, this child was set apart from his family to be a loved child of another family. This is what it is like to be part of God's family. This picture of a human relationship offers an interpretation of a divine relationship 
as part of his authority and his primacy and his supremacy. The Lord willingly reaches out to those who are not part of his family to offer them a place. Perhaps more surprisingly is he does so even to those who have wronged him, those who have blasphemed him, and those who have grieved him. Despite their rejection of him, he does not reject them. As creator, God is able to give what creation cannot. This includes in our relationships. The creation cannot outdo, outgive, or outperform the creator. It's just like a computer is only as good as the inputs that the man has put into it. In the same way, the creation cannot surpass the creator. This means that while human relationships may illustrate a divine relationship, they cannot be a substitute for it. While the Lord has created people for relationship with one another, those relationships are as flawed as the men and women who make those relationships up, who are part of them. But the relationship with God is the only one that is a relationship of perfection and of precision and of purity. As God is loving, so his relationship with those who call upon him is also loving. As God is perfect, so his love in that relationship is also perfect. And as God is wise, so is his plan for the outcome of that relationship. Therefore, the most significant relationship any individual will have is not with his or her friend, not with his or her spouse, and not even with his or her children the most powerful relationship that any individual can have is a relationship with God. In fact, it is your relationship with him that will define your relationship with them. Therefore, the serious relationships we seek first is not with the world, but with God. We do not know the culture to know God. We know Christ in order to know God. While the Lord has called us to relationship within this world, he's called us first to prioritize our relationship with the one who made the world. Anything else will always be lacking. Those who invest their being in a relationship with the world will always be unsatisfied. While those who invest their being in a relationship with God will always be satisfied. People will always disappoint, but God never disappoints. While God gives without restrictions, the world gives with expectations. They say, I will if you will. But God says, I will even if you fail. Those who seek their contentment in relationships with people alone will continually be discouraged. While those who seek their relationships continually and their contentment in that relationship with God will always be delighted. We are most satisfied in life when we are most satisfied in Christ. Few things are as honorable for me as saying, I am a husband to Bethany. Nothing brings me greater pride than saying, I am a father to my children. And few things elevate my dignity more than saying, I am the pastor of Cold Creek Church. But as marvelous as any of those things are, there is nothing more excellent than saying, I am a child of God.
Nothing is more remarkable than my relationship with God through Christ. It is a relationship with him that defines all of our other relationships. The question then for each of us to answer is not who am I in life. The question to answer is who am I in Christ? As Paul continues writing here in Colossians, he identifies who they are in the sight of God. He draws attention to their beliefs and their behavior, but to begin that, he appeals to their relationship to God through Christ. And as Paul appeals to the Colossians to conform their behavior to Christ in the text that we began all the way in 3.1 and will continue through 3.17, as Paul appeals to them to conform their behavior to Christ, he does so on the basis of who they are in Christ. In telling them to put off their old self and put on their new ways, he places attention on three aspects of a believer's relationship with God. And so we come to our text here this morning. And before we ever enter into this conversation about how to portray Christ, we first learn who we are in Christ. Before we ever ever being able to point others to Christ, we must first be able to understand who we are in Christ. And to call others to be children of God, we must first rejoice in the fact that we are children of God. And so I want you to note first, the child of God is chosen by God or called by God. The text here says, as God's chosen ones. That is to say, they are chosen by God or they are called by God. This is the first descriptor that Paul applies in our text. And those who have placed their faith in God are called by God. Few truths cause Christians to recoil more than this one. Few concepts are debated more than this doctrine. And few verses are doubted more than those that proclaim God's relationship with believers in this way. And yet, from Old Testament to New Testament, the concept of God's choice is preserved by a variety of authors at a variety of times. In the New Testament alone, it is a foundation for Paul's ministry, who writes to Timothy, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of God's chosen, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The Apostle Peter identifies in his first epistle that it is written to those who are chosen. And John writes of end times in Revelation saying, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. This truth becomes a stumbling block to professing believers and unbelievers alike. From a human perspective, it stands against one's human will. It denies one's self-determination, and it limits one's personal volition. Despite the doctrine of perspicuity, meaning the doctrine of the clarity of God's word, that God's word is clear to those who believe in him, this still becomes a point of contention, even to the point of denial. And so the only options that people will give are to pit God's will against man's will. But here it is in our text. 
staring back to us from our pages into our eyes. And we, we must look upon our text and ask, why has God chosen the Colossian believers? By their own testimony before Christ, they have said they were sexually immoral. They were entrenched in the ways of the world. They were angry and blasphemers and idolaters. That is their testimony before Christ. And then by the testimony of Paul's letter that we've been reading through, we see that even after Christ, they are still weak. They lack conviction, and they allow themselves to be swayed by the eloquent arguments of false teachers. They're quick to renounce their beliefs because they do not know what they believe. God would be well within his right to reject any one of them, as he could do with any of us. There's nothing in scripture that says God has to provide a means for salvation for anyone. He could condemn any one of us to an eternity in hell. But God is good. And God is gracious. And God is merciful. And so indeed, he did provide a way. And so the scripture says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why does this matter? What happens when we ignore this phrasing? Rather quickly, I want you to see that this concept preserves God's schematic. It preserves God's plan. God's chosen ones is a means to continue the Lord's plan and impart his will. Already in our call to worship this morning, we have seen it when we opened with the words, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abram, Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. If you follow that chapter further and come to verses 42 and 43, the psalmist reiterates this saying, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones, with singing. And then in Isaiah 43, our scripture reading, we see this once again, in which God provides for the chosen people, declaring the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That whole chapter we read this morning exalts God's relationship with them, but it concludes and begins with him choosing them. And choosing them for a purpose that they may be holy and blameless as well. And so from the beginning, God's plan depended on God's will. God's plan depended on God's choosing. He first chose Abraham. Of all the men that existed at that time, God chose to call upon Abraham. And he set him apart, saying that he would make Abraham into a great nation. And that great nation, of course, is... Israel, whom God chose of all the people groups. Even from the beginning, God's sovereign choice was declared by his designation of Israel. Israel didn't choose God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They chose anything but God. 
We see it when they worship the golden calf. We see that when they're wandering the desert and want to go back to Pharaoh instead of continuing under God. And we see that when they want to choose kings over the reign of God. Israel's status depended completely upon God's decision to choose them. It was never based on something they had to offer. Again, Scripture portrays that they had nothing to offer, and they continued to turn their back on God. But God chose them to make his plan clear to all people. Consider the words of Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And the Lord says, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Again, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out of this uh, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Lord chose them as his own, and he forms them into the people that he wants them to be. He does this through trial and triumph. He sends them to slavery in Egypt, but then he rescues them in the Exodus, giving them the law and then bringing them into the promised land. And by the time we arrive to Romans chapters 9 through 11, we see that all of humanity has been grafted into this plan. In fact, about three weeks ago, we already talked about that. That God's choosing then is a matter of orchestrating his plan. And so it would be dangerous for us to say that the Lord chose any nation or any individual as a result of any qualifications they had. It would be heretical to say that God chose one over the other simply based on some struggle they had or some version of self-sacrifice. No, this is the Lord's choosing at his own discretion in order to preserve the schematic, the design that he has outlined for creation. This choice also preserves God's sovereignty. Standing behind all Christian doctrines is the doctrine of God's sovereignty Standing behind all the activities of life are the activities of the creator of life. Crafted in 1646, the words of the Puritans define this by saying, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. From the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and in the free and immutable counsel of his own will. To sum that up, that is to say that the God who is is a God who reigns. God is God not in name only. He is God in activity as well. He is God by his ability to reign. He is God by his ability to have charge over all things. Steve Lawson would say, this is the undisputed throne rights of Jehovah to govern all that he has created. It is God's discretion to do what he wants, 
when he wants, how he wants to, and with whomever he chooses to. To have it any other way would elevate man's wants over God's will. But it is the almighty, the all-powerful creator who exercises influence over creation. The sovereignty of God is the dominant part of the text of Romans 8.28. Drawing the reader to the attention of God's authority, we have the words, And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that it is God who has called people together. He is the author of man's formation, and now he is the agent of man's formulation. But to what extent is the Lord involved in our lives? Notice two words in the middle of that text. All things. We know that those who love God, all things work together. God causes some things in my life. God allows things in the lives of my friends and my neighbors. But God controls all things. If God is not sovereign, then he is not God. This is actually the reason we pray to God for salvation. We pray to God for one to be saved because it is God who saves Lorraine Bettner once said, if God actually stood powerless before the majesty of man's lordly will, there would be but little use to pray for him to convert anyone. It would then be more reasonable for us to direct our positions, petitions to man himself. If the sole decision for salvation was based upon man's response alone, then there's no need to pray for the intervening work of the Holy Spirit. We only need to go to that person and try to compel them to be saved. Try to convince them. And then the burden of salvation is not about the Spirit's work. It becomes about my work. It becomes based on my ability to convince someone. Those who are passed over by God will never complain about God being unfair. Left to themselves, they have no desire to be part of God's will. God's choosing is an expression of his sovereignty. Additionally, God's choosing of the Colossian believers in our text, and we see that any believer, as a result, it is a means to preserve man's sanctification, man's holiness. Referring back to our text in Romans again, Romans 8, 8, and after seeing that God controls all things, then we must ask, for what purpose does God control all things? What is it that guides his use of his sovereign control? And Romans 8.28 reveals that all things work together for good. We must remember always that God's sovereignty is as an expression of God's goodness and his righteousness and his graciousness. By bringing people to himself, God reveals his goodness by not condemning that person to eternal damnation. Again, he could send all people there. And yet in choosing just one, he demonstrates that he is a kind, compassionate, merciful God. 
and what have, what have resulted in an annihilation, God has chosen those who will receive vindication. If God did not choose anyone, our situation would be hopeless because there would be no chance for rescue. But because he gives eternal life, there is a possibility, and with that possibility then comes the hope. And then consider further. Because all things, when it says all things in Romans 8.28, doesn't include just salvation. If all things work together for good, that must mean all things. It must mean everything. That means the situation you are facing right now is part of God's good plan for you and under his sovereign control. Again, in trial or triumph, God sovereignly orchestrates all things for all good in a believer's life. And what is it this good that God is hoping to cause? And verse 29 gives us an answer. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's sovereign choice is a means by which the Lord is working to conform believers into the image of his Son. It is the Lord's calling that initiates man's conformity. As God chooses an individual, he comes to him through the work of Christ. And he does so in order that they may be conformed to Christ. It was John Flavel who said, Did Christ finish his work for us? Then there can be no doubt that he will also finish his work in us. As the Lord orchestrates all things in our lives, ultimately for our good, it is done for the purpose of bringing about our sanctification, for the production of holiness in our lives. In all circumstances, the Lord is trying to bring out godly character. Again, whether in triumph or trial, the Lord is working for good. It is easy to proclaim the Lord's goodness in triumph. It is more difficult to do so in trial. In the moment, each of us may argue whether God's intentions are good at all. But I can tell you from my own personal testimony that I've been more transformed by trial than I ever have been by triumph. The Lord's greatest work in me has come at my weakest moments, in my most difficult moments, and what often turn out to be my most needy moments. This choosing of the Lord for sanctification is fully realized at the end, when each believer is fully sanctified, Chapter 8 goes on. Romans 8.30 stipulates, And those whom he has predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The day will come when we stand before the Lord, and those whom he has chosen will be fully glorified, because they've been fully sanctified, and they've been deemed completely holy by the Lord. And we'll even expand upon this next week. But verse 33 goes on then to say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Because it is God who justifies, then there never can be any charge leveled against his people. 
How freeing that should be for each of us to know that no allegation, no accusation will stand against those whom the Lord has called. That on that day, no indictment will stand, but rather we will be fully declared not guilty. And not because of what I did, but because of God's call. As Matthew Henry said, none can know their election but by their conformity to Christ. For all who are chosen are chosen to sanctification. The Lord's choosing preserves man's sanctification. When asked to reconcile human responsibility with God's sovereignty, Charles Spurgeon said, I cannot reconcile friends. Most people want to hold on to man's responsibility And so in doing so, they will deny God's sovereignty. And on the other side, some people want to hold on to God's sovereignty, so they will deny man's responsibility. It is not an either-or. It is a both-and. Both are presented in Scripture. Long ago, someone once noted in this way, saying that when you anticipate heaven, looking forward, you read the sign that says, whoever will may come. But upon entering, you will look back and see the same sign that says, Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. One commentator writes, God's sovereign election and man's exercise of responsibility in choosing Jesus Christ seem opposite and irreconcilable truths. And from our limited perspective, they are opposite and and irreconcilable That is why so many earnest, well-meaning Christians throughout the history of the church have floundered trying to reconcile them. Since a problem cannot be resolved by our finite minds, the result is always to compromise one truth in favor of the other, or to weaken both by trying to take a position somewhere between them. We should let the antimony remain, believing both truths completely and leaving the harmonizing of them to God. Human will is not undermined by God's choosing, but rather it's heightened by it. God's choice of any individual demands then our allegiance to him. It calls us to forsake the world for the sake of God. It should crush our pride because it's not anything we did, anything we said, or anything we earned. We have nothing to boast about. There's nothing I can shout to others to exalt my own abilities. I can't even boast by saying I chose God. Instead, I must say God chose me. And I can only boast about Jesus Christ. Humbled in heart, we have no basis for saying, look at me, Lord. But with gratitude, we can only say, thank you for looking at me, Lord. The same truth that crushes our pride also cultivates joy. Joyful at being able to say, I am a child of God. I rejoice that he has chosen me. In his commentary on this verse, Lloyd Ogilvy says, We have been called to be God's people, not because of our goodness, but because of his grace. The result is praise, not pride. As we'll see next week, God's choice results in being recipients and of his holiness and of his love. And that is something more to rejoice in. 
But in the meantime, let us pray like Thomas Watson by saying, let us then ascribe the whole work of grace to the pleasure of God's will. God did not choose us because we were worthy, but by choosing us, he makes us worthy. Let's pray. Father God, we come before your word once again and are compelled as always to think deeper thoughts about you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray as we go about this week, that's indeed what we will do. That we will not think our thoughts of you, but, Lord, we would seek out your thoughts about yourself, Lord. Expose our hearts to your word that we may know you more deeply this week, Lord. And may we return wanting to know more May we look upon this text and be excited by the fact that indeed those of us who have believed and who have called upon your Son are called by you, and thus we are made holy by you and loved by you. And so, Father, we just commit this time to you, thanking you for the revelation contained within your word this morning. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.